Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's panel on negotiation under stress. I've been fortunate to chat with over 150 remarkable people on my Intentional Performers podcast. These people have overcome adversity, thought deeply about leadership, have, have set up intentional lives for themselves to perform at their best. They're also experts at their craft, and today's guests are certainly experts when it comes to thinking about negotiation and thinking about how we can leverage that in our everyday lives and, and at our work as well. The coronavirus has created challenges for so many throughout the world, and it is my hope that these panel discussions will help those in need. While everyone on this panel has tremendous expertise, I also want to note that what we are going through is truly unprecedented, and there are many questions that the panelists probably won't have the answer to, and that's simply okay. This isn't designed to give you the answer to every question you have. Instead, it's designed to have you think deeply about how you can handle this challenging time. So with that, I'd like to start with Blake and have him introduce himself, and uh, we'll, we'll sort of go from there. Thanks for having me, Brian, and um, thank you for everything you're doing. It's, uh, it's incredible. Uh, my name is Blake Barretts. I'm a president and founder of the Institute for Athletes, which is a traditional sports agency. Uh, we represent uh, about 30 NFL players, uh, really in all facets of their life, contractually, uh, marketing endorsements, uh, branding initiatives, philanthropically. Uh, we've, I, I opened it in uh, 2009, and uh, it's grown just really through referrals ever since. And uh, we're trying to take a holistic, comprehensive approach to representing professional athletes. Uh, I think traditionally agencies uh, have gotten kind of stagnant. And I don't know if agent's the right word, but I, I view us more as confidants, life managers, mentors. Um, we treat it, you know, like a family. We're not taking, not throwing a fishing pole out to anyone. We're really cognizant of who we bring in. Uh, they have to fit a certain a certain niche for us, which is mature guys, guys that want to be better on and off the field, guys that communicate properly, guys that want to be leaders. And it's been great. That's what I do, you know, 365 days a year. And we've, we've added some verticals to our business the last couple of years, but that's where I'm spending probably 75% of my time. And I'm married. Uh, I've been married 11 years. We have two small kids, a four and a two-year-old that I'm sure will barge through that door any moment. And I live in Minneapolis. I went, I know Brian, uh, we went on a, on a trip to Israel together 15 years ago or something like that and stayed in touch. And now we actually, obviously we're, we're friends, but we have a professional relationship too. Uh, given his background, he works with some of our clients and we have clients that are in the DC area. And uh, I'm happy to be a part of this and happy to meet you guys. And one of these years I'm gonna get to the shindig out east up at the cabin and uh, look forward to participating. Thanks, Blake. Bob, why don't you go next? Uh, sure. Uh, Brian, thanks again for organizing this. And it's such a terrific idea. I'm Bob Bourdon. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at Harvard Law School now, having just finished 21 years of full-time teaching at Harvard Law School, where I founded the school's negotiation and mediation clinic. Uh, I'm now working full-time actually doing the work of negotiation in a number of capacities, uh, sometimes teaching, many times coaching, sometimes facilitating uh, complex negotiations, really um, across a whole number of industries. Um, a lot of my attention um, has been, I think, by dint of being based in Boston um, around healthcare, 
Um, and the past two weeks have seen me um, doing a lot of coaching of people who are in urgent and challenging negotiations, trying to build a team and coordinate care in a moment of crisis. Um, so uh, it's exciting to be on this panel. Um, I also met Brian uh, not 15 years ago, but I met him on a trip to Israel uh, about maybe two or three years ago. Um, and uh, really excited to be here. My, my parents are going to be so proud and my, my, my dead grandparents are going to be even prouder that the first two panelists met me in Israel. Uh, so with that, I'm going to kick it over to Danielle and, and she's going to introduce herself. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Um, also, thanks for having me and for organizing this. It's amazing to, you know, that you're always, you're such a servant leader, always trying to um, provide support, guidance, opportunities um, to as many people as you can, um, no matter what the circumstances. And I think obviously, as everyone said, we're in a interesting time right now. And, um, you know, you really hit the ground running right away, figuring out how to, um, you know, provide some content and useful tools during this time. So thank you for organizing this and for having us. Um, I did not meet Brian in Israel. Um, but um, Brian and I also um, work together. He's worked with a number of my athlete clients over the years. Um, and my, I am an NBPA certified agent, so I represent NBA players. I'm also the executive vice president and a partner at um, FAME, which is Falk Associates Management Enterprises, David Falk's um, sports agency. I have been... Um, in the sports industry, specifically in basketball for 20 years now, started um, at SFX Sports in 2000 as part of the talent marketing division, handling um, athlete endorsements, marketing opportunities for the firm's athlete clients. Um, did that for many years and it kind of evolved when SFX uh, sold to Clear Channel and then to flipped it to Live Nation, got out of sports, and that's how I ended up um, sort of joining, staying with David as he relaunched Fame in 2007. And uh, together we uh, built a ultra boutique agency um, that we've been running together since then. We, you know, have a handful of young current NBA athlete clients and um, a lot of retired guys that we manage businesses and um, several different types of act activation for. I am also um, involved with Peace Players International, um, which Brian also does uh, on the Leadership Council and um, volunteer in a number of other organizations. I'm also a youth soccer coach. I, I played soccer my whole life and in college, um, division one soccer, and um, really enjoy giving back now to the next generation of up and coming female soccer players. And I've always been a tomboy and athlete, love sports. Um, so, you know, kind of always consider myself one of the guys, so to speak. And so um, I love spending my business life surrounded by professional athletes and trying to help them on and off the court. Um, and I, you know, 
same thing, characters, everything, the athletes we represent, um, that they can speak well, communicate well, and we're helping them use their platforms um, to do good and, and have positive impact um, in the world around them. And I'm also um, teaching a class in negotiations in the fall and a class in entrepreneurship in the spring at the GW, the George Washington Law School. Thank you. We use the Harvard Law Book for Negotiations is one of the five books we use for our students. So um, kind of have little connections, I guess, to the other speakers as well. And I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And Matt, why don't you take us home? Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Matt Hartman. I'm a partner at Betaworks Ventures. We do, uh, we work with a different kind of uh, uh, athlete, which is an entrepreneur, a different kind of high performance uh, individual. And uh, we we build and invest in companies at the earliest stages. So we uh, worked, we incubated a company called Bitly, a company called Giphy, which is an animated GIF search engine. We've invested in companies like Twitter and Kickstarter and Tumblr, and more recently in companies like Gimlet Media and Anchor. And uh, my, my personal experience was I was on the uh, entrepreneurial side first. I was at a company that we ended up uh, selling to Facebook. And then I, uh, I also built the technology platform for a big real estate company called CBRE. And then I built a business at the intersection of uh, real estate and social media. I ended up licensing that uh, to a company called Departments.com uh, before uh, joining uh, Betaworks. And so my experience is really uh, in negotiations in the context of anything from sales uh, of, of products to sales of businesses to um, uh, to negotiating with with founders when we're we're making an investment and so i'm excited to uh to learn from everybody here uh, and and brian you're the person who who really taught me that that high performance individuals are in lots of different places not just uh, uh on the quarter on the field and so it's been interesting to learn from you and and i and i'm my hometown is is the same as your hometown in uh in maryland and so what's really cool about this panel that's different than the ones I've done up until now is I know all these people pretty intimately. Um, and Matt's younger brother, Andrew, and I went to high school together. He's a little bit younger than me, and we were in the same fraternity in college as well. So I know of his family, and we won't talk about his brother on air. We'll keep that off air. But um, where I wanted to start was with Bob. And Bob, can you frame this conversation? Because you said you're in the middle of it right now. And so look, the timing of this, people are in crisis uh, and people are dealing with tough decisions. And so talk about how you're using negotiation, how you think about negotiation and how it's relevant to what people are going through right now. Sure. Thanks, Brian. So first of all, as someone who, who's kind of 100% work is negotiation, um, you know, I, I see it everywhere. <laughs> I see... Um, you know, anytime you're trying to influence anyone's choice, you're negotiating. And, uh, you know, when I thought about the title of this panel, um, I, I had kind of two reactions. One was, well, of course, this is a time of huge stress. But then I thought about so many of the people that I work with who would say the act of negotiation is necessarily a time of stress for me. Uh, because people are, many people get anxious and they worry about negotiation. Uh, and um, what I would say that in a moment, at least from my experience, and, and certainly some of kind of what I, the conversations I have over this past week, um, 
some of the things that come up more in times of stress that don't set you up as easily for a most optimal or successful negotiation is that you're operating often you know, with a very severe deadline. Now, deadlines can actually really help negotiations, but deadlines often create a lot of additional stress. You can also see a lot more short, hostile behavior. Um, what's interesting about a moment like this um, or any kind of stressful moment is that there are opportunities for us to, I think, become our very best version of ourselves. Um, but when we're tired, <laughs> when we're angry, um, the kinds of little things that bothered you a little bit about your colleagues <laughs> now are intolerable. <laughs> um, and they come out more quickly. Um, and so I think what can also happen is really good negotiators are always thinking about uh, not just their interests in the moment, but what, what is it going to look like in six months, in a year, in five years, right? One of the things, even listening to the introductions that I heard the other panelists, you know, talk about is caring about kind of the whole person of their clients and not just what's the best deal I can get for like this season. But I think in a time of crisis, right, our ability and interest to kind of see a longer time frame can also go away, right? Because we're panicked. Um, so I could go on and on, but I would just say these are some of the particular, I think, features that I've seen. Um, I'm happy as we get into this to kind of offer some of what I see as possible pieces of advice that we can uh, bring to a stressful moment. Um, I think these are, I think, at least some of what can make the stressful piece kind of exacerbated in a negotiation. And Blake, you just went through and are still in the midst of free agency in the sport that you work in. Talk about what it's been like the last couple of weeks, uh, helping to try to get your clients new contracts and talk about the negotiation and what that process has been like for you under under this environment? Yeah, I mean, it was a bizarre process this year. It's certainly a bizarre process for everyone. Uh, in our world, um, a lot of our free agent conversations, meetings have been going on for months, if not in some cases a year, where our clients are kind of prepared for what we believe the marketplace to be and then, you know, how they did during the NFL season this year affected ultimately their price. So we were prepared regardless and then we went to the senior bowl and the combine and we have a lot of these face-to-face -face conversations that uh start to you start to figure out which teams are are real which interest is real which dollars are real and you're constantly in communication with your clients so from a preparation standpoint there weren't a lot of concerns the concerns on our end were more we were in the middle of a cba negotiation so we didn't know if there was going to be a brand new collectively bargained for agreement which changes the entire set of rules and the landscape and then simultaneously, um, I believe deep down that the NFL was probably going to push back free agency, and I know a lot of the teams did. So on, we, you know, we were on a Saturday night, the CBA passed. Monday morning, 48 hours later, you had to be in tune with the new rules, which was almost impossible. It's a 575-page document. And then Monday, you could negotiate, and Wednesday, free agency was still opening on Wednesday. For us, we had six or seven free agents, so we could handle it. I think a lot of the teams were really panicking. And then there were different rules within the 
teams, some teams were keeping their facilities open. Some teams were closing them. Uh, the NFL finally stepped in and said, hey, we're going to make this a even playing field for everybody. And you can't bring college kids in. You can't bring free agents in. You can't give them a physical. So it was challenging in those regards. And we got out in front of it. And when we found deals that we were really comfortable with, we got them done as quickly as possible. Because I didn't think I didn't think time was necessarily on our side in some of these situations. Uh, but it was challenging. Uh, I mean, it still is challenging. We still have three guys that are free agents. And we can't even confirm when other deals are done because some teams aren't actually signing off on the deals without a physical. And so we see them being reported by Adam Schefter or NFL Network or on social media. So I have to call the GM and say, did this deal get done and what values are there at to input, you know, put it into our database. Hey, so Blake, I'm curious, just what's your mindset? Like, how are you navigating these complexities? Talk about how you're, how you're focused or where you're paying attention to. I think a lot of it just comes down to preparation and having consistent communication with your clients and with the team. So, you know, coronavirus was a surprise, but once free agency started, a lot of those things weren't surprises. So for us, it was business as usual. And again, you know, we could handle it for six or seven guys. For an NFL general manager that has to figure out where they're at from a cap perspective, understand the new rules, which guys they want to retain, have simultaneous offers out to different players because you have to fill out a roster is significantly more challenging. Um, and I frankly, I don't think a lot of them are dealing with it well. Uh, the NFL historically is fairly antiquated, not that progressive, uh, technologically challenged. I mean, these are, they're struggling right now. They don't know how to operate. Um, for us, it was in a weird way. It was kind of business as usual. And in some cases we kind of had a leg up because the guys that we had that were free agents are, you know, guys that are talented, high character guys, captains of the team, not a lot of concerns, whether character or health related or injury related. So it took a lot of the things that were difficult to navigate off the table for us. That's not because I'm the smartest guy in the world. It was because we got lucky with who our guys that happened to be free this year. And Danielle, I saw you go ear to ear with a big smile when Blake said the word preparation. Preparation. Yeah. Why was that smile so big for you? So for me and any of my students who ever end up watching this can attest to this. Um, when I, whenever I teach negotiations, talk about negotiations, live in negotiations, it, the biggest thing for me is preparation. And I think when you talk about principles of negotiation, different styles, the stages, um, preparation plays into all of it and how you approach the entire preparation process, in my opinion, impacts everything in terms of, of the outcome of a negotiation, no matter what kind of negotiation it is. And so if, if you can master the preparation stage, I believe that's what, what makes for a successful negotiator. Um, and with that means anticipating the other side's potential arguments, their potential interpretation of relevant comps in the marketplace, which may not be the comps you would have identified, but you really, I mean, in the preparation stage, really trying to cover all bases, trying to really think outside the box, put yourself in the other side's shoes, um, really take on their perspective. 
everything Blake said um, really resonated with me and, and is much of what I um, live and, and breathe in terms of approach to free agency and also to the, recruit, the recruiting process. Um, but what's interesting now, as we talk about what we're going through now, is as much as I love to preach the importance of preparation, um, here we are in a time where no one was prepared for what for the world we're living in. And um, what, what does that mean for someone who relies, you know, myself relies so heavily on my work ethic and, and, and my, my attention to detail in the preparation mindset, as Brian likes to call it. And we can get into that a whole other time. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, initially that, that was difficult because for the first time in my life, I wasn't prepared for this situation, but no one else was, um, not even our government or our country. Um, that's a separate issue too. Um, <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll keep politics aside for now. Um, and the so, art of the deal. I mean, that's a negotiation book, right, Bob Bordone? It is a negotiation. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and so, I, I, when, you know, at the end of the day, though people aren't prepared for um, what we're dealing with in terms of tech, the technology we have to rely so heavily upon right now, or, you know, the lack of human interaction um, you know, various things we're all going through, health scares, anxiety, pressures. At the end of the day, you're still consistent in your value system and committed to, um, to those values and to how you carry yourself and what you do. And I think mental toughness really comes into play here. People who are mentally strong, mentally tough can really, um, you know, thrive in, in tough times. And so this is no different. Um, it, you know, I love the challenge. I love the new challenge of trying to figure out how to navigate these times. And although I wasn't technically prepared, like I said, for what we're doing, what Blake mentioned is so true. You're still prepared for the task at hand. You're still prepared for free agency or for recruiting. And though some of the dynamics have changed and certain elements are out of your control, it's so important to, to just remain focused and really tuned in to the principles and the values. And, not, and at that point, nothing else should matter. Once you're, I like to say, I over-prepare and I, I think of every possible detail, you know, every possible challenge, hiccup in the deal, whatever it is, so that the reason I, I say that in the preparation, so that when I get into the room, when, it's a negotiate, when I'm at the negotiating table or, recruiting table or I guess now on the uh, the web conference whatever platform we should use technology wise once I'm in that room it's game time and it's go time and if you're if you're fully prepared then you have the confidence in my opinion to really lock in and be fully present for the process of the negotiation and when you're present you can be more flexible you can adapt if something that quite that you maybe didn't fully anticipate comes up you're not thinking what am I going to say next or how am I going to respond to this question because you're so fully prepared that you're present and you're able to be more adaptable in the moment and I think that can be applied to what we're all going through now and Matt this is going to be this is going to show how ill-prepared I am for this what were you doing in 2008 2009 
I was at, uh, I was just, I started business school in 2009. I was at CBRE in the real estate industry in 2008. Beautiful. So that was sort of an, an interesting time um, to see that world. And I wasn't in tech, which is sort of one of the, one of the things I've been doing is talking to a lot of venture capital investors who did live through the 2008 uh, crisis and um, understanding what their perspective is on today versus uh, versus then. I'm actually, I'm kind of curious for Danielle or, or Bob or Blake's point of view, when you talk about being prepared, how much of you, are, are you talking about um, the, the information versus cultivating potential options, you know, alternatives versus <laughs> kind of other pieces of, of preparation? Because I can imagine um, there's a knowing everything there is to know and kind of having a point to it versus, and, and versus sort of almost like knowing what you want. Um, or is it all of those, all of those elements? So for me, it's all of those elements. It's it, when I talk about preparation, that's why I keep, I really overemphasize it because it, it's, it's the information, it's doing your due diligence. It's seeing, like I said, seeing the argument, the potential points, point, counterpoint from all perspectives. Um, it's, it's thinking outside the back, outside the box during the information gathering stages. Um, talking to uh, other people close to the people you're dealing with and then people close to them, really, you know, using your network and beyond people you rely on to, you know, get the most accurate information you can, but then also the people, understanding the people you're dealing with. There's, there's a human aspect to this that's so important um, is, is the psychology of the people with whom you're negotiating. And, you know, although once you're in the negotiating room and, and, and that process starts, it's, it's oftentimes important to try to separate the, the problems or the issues from the people. Um, it's the, 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 the human aspect of it is so important in, in the pre preparation process. Um, and it's also things as simple as which, which we can't really um, use in, in the current environment, but, but things as, as simple as where you're going to meet, what you're going to wear, who's going to make the first offer. All of these things are part of, of the preparation process for me. Um, and, and, and for me, in a free agent negotiation, in a recruiting meeting, whatever it is, the preparation stage for me lasts so much longer than just, okay, I got to sit down for the next few hours and prepare for this negotiation. For me, it's cultivating relationships and maintaining relationships over a long period of time leading up to a negotiation that you may not, it may not even be for a specific negotiation, but in my world, in Blake's world, we're dealing with the same GMs and owners time and time again, right? It's a long horse race. You're going to have to deal with these people at, you know, for multiple negotiations over long periods of time. So it's really, for me, when you're not in free agency or you're not in a particular negotiation period, you're always in the preparation stage because you're always maintaining the relationship. So you really have a good rapport with the people you're going to end up dealing, you know, with dealing with when it does come time for negotiation. And so now in these, you know, in the current, in, in, in our current situation, you're preparing for, you know, so I'm not in free agency like Blake, but, but this is recruiting time. And we don't even know what's going to happen with the NBA draft yet. But, you know, you lose the NCAA tournament, which is huge for basketball. And for me in recruiting, being able to connect 
with the individual, with his family, with his advisors, with people around him, that's where I excel. I can get in a room and part of the preparation is over a long period of time, getting as much information as I can about this prospect, his family, et cetera, so that by the time I ever meet him, I know as much as I possibly can and hopefully more than any of the competition about this individual and why he might be a good fit for our agency and how I can, what, what the value add is on my end to differentiate myself from the competition. And so much of that for me really relies heavily upon that human interaction and being able to have a genuine connection with the individual, his mom, whomever in the room. And so now when you take that away and for the first time ever, we're having these, you know, Zoom, Google, whatever platform, you know, online recruiting pitches um, it really changes that aspect of the preparation stage um, because you're removing all of the opportunity to have a human interaction. And how do you do that? And how, how does that look different? And you, at the end of the day, you're on a screen, but you still have to try to find that same way to connect without being physically in and, the present in the same room. And Bob and Blake, I'm going to just pause you for a second because I don't want Matt to get off the hook. I appreciate your curiosity, Matt, but I want to get your perspective because it's different from the other panelists. So you're at CBRE during this time of crisis in the real estate industry. So you have that experience. You also have the experience of negotiating and trying to get terms for your business and for something that you create and, and selling it. And now you're on the other side of it. And by the way, shout out to Bitly, which is one of the companies that you talked about. I use Bitly to put the links out for these conversations. It's an amazing, amazing tool for those that don't know. But yeah, I use it when, all the time. Yeah, it's awesome. So when those three areas, I'm just curious to get your perspective on the negotiations that take place when you're wearing those different hats and if they're similar or if they're different and what that experience is like. Yeah, I mean, I, I view those negotiations as being actually pretty, pretty similar uh, in terms of kind of the preparation, in terms of, I mean, what, what Danielle was talking about was almost, was almost what I would think of as like sales, but it's also... Uh, to Bob's point, these are these are negotiate. Everything's a negotiation in some way, right? Um, to me, when I look at the the difference between some of these things, it's it's actually maybe this is a uh, a more introspective way to look at it. But the things that have changed in those are really my approach to negotiating versus. And I wish I would I had taken the same approach when I was looking at helping a company sell or. Uh, or how or making an investment in the company that I took when I was, uh, you know, negotiating an agreement to to potentially sell my company, and I think that the when I look at the the thing that resonated with me was thinking about you know even small things like making the first offer is the there aren't hard and fast rules right it's sometimes you have enough information that it makes sense to make an offer and sometimes you don't have enough information in which case listening uh, is almost always listening is the most important thing but. But, uh, but to me, the thing that changed through all those different types of negotiation was actually just my approach. I think to the, the, what I learned, I think that the other thing that, uh, Danielle said that resonated with me was just having the repeatability of having multiple sort of multi-turn negotiations is really different than doing a one-off negotiation. And if you're in an industry where you're as an investor, we're, we're, uh, we do like, I don't know, 20 deals a year. And so it's a lot of investments we're making. And if we have a reputation as trying as uh, it's a negative reputation, we're trying to kind of 
eke out that last, uh, that last thing, I'm sure we can get it, right? But then our reputation is going to suffer and people are going to approach us that way. And, and, me, and, and I think a lot of these reputations are, are individual as much as they are as firm, firm related. So the, the, I think one, one thing I've learned is, is trying to be a good communicator while negotiating, which means talking but also listening a ton and really understanding what people want. Two is, to the extent that I can, I, I really try to, um, and this changed a lot for me, I, I approached early negotiations in my career withholding information, right? Really being scared about getting taken advantage of. And what I learned was there are, there are some times where it makes sense to, to uh, obfuscate some information, for example, saying, here are my order of my priorities, but not necessarily uh, all of, uh, here's the most number one most important thing to me, or here's not how, how that is here's a way that, uh, that, that I'm thinking about doing the deal. I mean, I'll give you a quick example, which is we made an investment on, in a company and often when, when you follow on investments, there's, there's sharp elbows to the table. The lead investor coming in at the next round wants to make sure they can get all of the investment they can get. Other people, once a deal is happening, now want to invest where they were sitting on the sidelines before. And my approach uh, now is to really share my, my intention with the founder. Here's what we're trying to do. I want to make sure we have X percent ownership in the company. And my back of the envelope calculation is that this is the dollar, the dollar amount that that's going to, that, that's need to get me there. But I'm really flexible on the dollar amount as long as we can get to percentage. A lot of other investors feel the opposite way. And their approach is they really need to make sure they put this much money to work. And we're, we're in that particular case, you might be able to expand the pie where if you don't give the person the information that of your actual interest, they may try to solve for your sort of, the, the interest that you're feigning versus versus just sort of sharing your your goals. And so all things being equal, I try to uh, optimize for just sharing as much information as I can, because I think that will help the other person take my actual interest into, into account. And Bob, I see you nodding your head over there. What's your perspective on what Matt, and you were going to also comment when Danielle was chatting. So I cut you off, but uh, give us your perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, everything both of them say resonates, um, you know, very much with me, very much with really the research. I mean, I was, you know, nodding, Matt, when you were talking about sharing information, right? I mean, we know from research that the way you find the biggest possible deal is under conditions of what is called FOAT, full, open, truthful exchange. Now, the reality is in any negotiation, the more information you share, the more open you are to getting exploited because as you were indicating, right, if someone knows the most important thing is X, well, then they could hold out and get everything they want and then give you X. Um, and so um, I think the tension is always how do we find ways, set up a process where each of us can actually share information about our true preferences with some sense that the risk that the other side is going to take advantage of us is gonna be minimized because the more we get those true preferences out there, the better we're gonna be at finding creative outcomes to make them happen. And I think that then really, you know, really connects to what Danielle is saying around the importance of building relationships, understanding what's really important to people over a longer period of time, right? Where you develop, especially in an industry where there's, you know, repeat play, a sense that you're trustworthy, um, um, which means that you're obviously going to be working really hard on behalf of yourself or your client, um, but you care about outcomes that are kind of grounded in 
information. And so, you know, the question um, you had asked earlier, Matt, about what do you mean by preparation? Um, to me, I think about it in a number of domains, right? One domain is absolutely facts and figures. Um, you know, if that's, if you're in the world of facts and figures and statistics, right? If you're in the world of, you know, science and medicine, right? It's really knowing, you know, what are the epidemiological studies telling you? Um, like how many ventilators do we need? Why do we need those ventilators now? Um, and why should our hospital get them and not this other hospital? Um, but it's also um, understanding who the players are um, and what their internal um, incentive systems are within their organization. So understanding um, what are the patterns of deference um, within an organization, right? And sometimes they're formal, like Jill is Joe's boss, <laughs> but often they're informal. Uh, people defer to other people because of relationships, because of past history. Um, and so that's another really important domain. And then I think the, the third, right, is really that individual um, relationship building um, that's important. And the other overlay I'll put on this, and, um, and this is you know, something that Danielle, you were really mentioning, um, is the role that process pay, plays in all negotiations. And so one of the things we're seeing right now is a disruption of process. Um, the process that you would use, which you know, I have only the vaguest idea of, right, around the NBA draft, right, is gone. Is gone. Um, and so I think it's really important to um, think about, given the modes that we have available to us, um, how do we design a process that enables information exchange? that draws upon actual facts, information, and data, that enables people to kind of build the relationships that they need, limited means that we have, right, um, so that we can get optimal outcomes. And, and Bob, I'm, it was a perfect segue of what I'm thinking about, which is right now we're sitting here, it's Friday, 145, we're, we're in the thick of this thing, and uh, Matt, you're in the tech world. There are probably startups right now that are making hard decisions on whether they need to lay off a certain percentage of their uh, people. Uh, Blake, you run a business and are always, you know, managing people. I think you're also involved with a restaurant. Like there, there's there's complicated decisions that need to get made. Danielle, you know, when do you reach out to the family, and what if they're struggling with somebody? physically right now. I mean, people are in the hospital, people are dying. This isn't like some made up crisis. This thing's real. When do I send an invoice for the work that I do? When, like, Bob, you started by saying negotiation is everywhere in your opinion. Yeah. And, and I feel the same way. Like I was supposed to have lunch and coffee with 15 other people over the next three weeks. And what's appropriate, the timing, the when, Blake, you said earlier, you know, maybe I want to get things done a little quicker because of the chaotic or unknown situation. So I'd love to hear in real time how, if you have any thoughts or advice for people that are wrestling with those things, because I know I am in my business. And I think most people that are watching this are either concerned that they might be the one laid off, making tough decisions on laying people off. I talked to someone this morning who's in retail and is trying to figure out what do I do with my retail stores? I mean, these are like real 
issues do I negotiate with my landlord and say, hey, I can't pay you my rent right now. So here we are, like right now. Um, so if one of you wants to raise your hand and, and try to shed some light, I'm happy to sort of pass it because I think all of you could give insight if, if one of you wants to take it. Danielle, why don't you go and then I'll kick so, it over to so Bob. So I just want to say one thing. I'm sure everyone will have a lot more to say. Mine's not, you know, mine's more general, generally addressing your question. But I think probably the most important thing in everything you just asked is it's okay to not have the answers, all the answers right now. And in any situation, um, for me personally, I think it's, and, and a lot of this really, as Matt sort of mentioned earlier in terms of how things, his style changed over time is with more experience comes more confidence. And when you have more confidence in what you're doing in your own ability, I think it, it, makes it easier to, to, to know what you don't know and to admit that and to be able to articulate that. And so everything you just asked, Brian, my, the, the, the most important thing in my opinion is communication and honesty and transparency. And I think no one ha has to have all the answers right now in terms of when the right time is to, to lay someone off or not, when the right time is to um, reach back out to a, to a recruit that I'm recruiting when the right time is for Blake to try to push a deal to get done faster than usual. But if you're communicating that to the people and making them feel that they're part of the process and humanizing it with them um, every step of the way, then I think you have a better outcome in, in the end either way. Um, and I think that's the most important thing right now is so many people don't know what to do but they're, they're not communicating as regularly as they could be about that. And so then people on the other end are kind of just waiting and who knows what's happening during that waiting period. So as long as you're really working hard to keep open those lines of communication and, and provide as much transparency as you can, I think you, you have a better result in the end, no matter what it is. Bob, what's your perspective? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had two points and now I have one. Uh, because <laughs> uh, because the transparency piece, I think, is so important. Um, um, just being, yeah, just being direct about what you know and what you don't know um, actually has a calming effect. Um, and, and so the second thing I wanted to say, though, um, which I think is actually related, but I think there's a way in which, particularly under times of crisis, we can see decisions as binary. Um, I either lay them off or I don't. I either you know, do this or I don't. Um, and I think a really important lesson that I've learned from really great negotiators, uh, not myself, is that if we take a step back and can just look at what are the kind of underlying interests of people on both sides of an employment situation, um, some of them are shared and some of them are definitely different but there's usually some more creative ways of ha talking about it <laughs> um, that have contingencies that allow us to be a little bit more flexible and nimble and creative of course that requires some transparency um, but i think if we feel that we're stuck with an either yes or no um, on or off um, we lose a lot of possibility that negotiation can really bring to the table in a moment like this. And 
Blake, you live in a world where it's very transactional in, in nature, even though, yes, you want to build the relationships over the long term, you're signing a three-year deal and that's, that's the terms. What have you learned over the years? What's changed in your style or your approach uh, in how you handle negotiations now uh, and maybe how you used to handle it 10 years ago? Um, you know, honestly, I don't know if my philosophy has changed much. Uh, my philosophy has always been be as transparent as you can, be honest as you can, understand your client, and and I and I try to treat everybody the same. I try to treat everyone equally. I talk to the owner of the Redskins the same way that I talk to my wife, or the same way I talk to my clients. So I think over time you build credibility. You build credibility as being an honest, transparent individual. That doesn't mean I'm trying to divulge information that would hurt me or hurt my client. But I'm also just not an agent that's out there saying, let's go get the most amount of money. Getting the most amount of money may not be what's in the best interest of your client. I think that's a, a huge misnomer in our, in our field, uh, Danielle, is, is I think uh, you know, there are some clients that say, I don't care. This is my one chance. I want to make as much money as humanly possible. But I try to convey to players that, you know, let's figure out what's important to you. Because especially in the NFL where the contracts are not fully guaranteed, you have a short shelf life, um, you know, it's, it's understanding what they want. And that's always been my approach. I, I, and I've seen in my business specifically, even literally up until yesterday, there's a lot of agents out there that are making empty promises to their clients. I talked to a GM yesterday that told me he'll never deal with an agent again because they're going to the market unprepared to Danielle's point why preparation is so important. They're promising the world based on some numbers or stats but that offer may not be there. The landscape consistently changes and, and you're playing Russian roulette with the guy's career and livelihood. And I don't take that lightly. So I will never do that. Some guys want to hear how great they are and how much money they're going to make. And if I don't believe it to be true, I'm not going to tell my client that, which I'm not the best fit for everyone. Like Antonio Brown and I, it's not going to be a good relationship. I need guys that get it. I need guys that will listen. I need guys that I can tell difficult information to that. I'm going to tell you the good news, the bad news, the indifferent news. And again, to Daniel's point, preparation, I think is in all facets. It's, it's the relationships, it's socially, it's statistically, all of those things end up, you know, building up your credibility. At the end of the day, you either have leverage or you don't. So it doesn't really matter in the NFL, especially it's really difficult to get leverage. Uh, the NFL shield is always going to be more powerful than any one player. I mean, Tom Brady just left the Patriots. The NBA is a little different. They're a little more progressive. They make it a little more about the players. LeBron James and Steph Curry and whoever the 12 superstars could probably get together and get a lot of things changed if they wanted to. It's a superstar-driven league, and they can play for 18 years. You know, the NFL is very, very, very different in that capacity. The top players in the league rarely get leverage. And you're seeing it with Dak Prescott right now. The owners have done a very good job of minimizing what the players can do from a contractual standpoint, a free agency standpoint. That all affects how we have to approach the negotiation because this is their one chance to create generational wealth for themselves or their family. And I don't take that lightly, but that's not what every guy wants to hear. And there's a common thread that you all have hit on, which is empathy. Uh, Blake, you're saying, hey, what's, what's best for my clients? And then it's my job to help them get what they want. Danielle, you talked about working with you know, people over a long period of time and trying to figure out how it can be a win-win, basically. And Bob, I know this is something I've seen you in action doing workshops on negotiation is really understanding what does the other person want? 
Matt, you talked about listening. That's the only way you can really find out to know what somebody else wants. But Matt, Blake brings up a really interesting point around leverage. And um, in your world, there's going to be some opportunities that come up in the next week, two weeks, where companies are in need of money and um, might be in a tight spot. And um, how different investors are leveraged might create some opportunities without being cold and callous to the health of and well-being of people, there are going to be opportunities and situations. I'm just curious how you think about that when you're in a negotiation, uh, the leverage piece. And if you're more owner than you are player, as Blake was saying, and in a position where um, you can maybe get a greater return um, on your investment. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think about this a couple of ways. One is there's there's leverage in in, and there's there's sort of inequality in some in, in some negotiate some deals and some deals that aren't. To me, the the strongest leverage point is just the willingness to walk away. And if you know what you want, or you know what the person you represent wants, then it's actually sometimes becomes very easy to say, be direct and say, here's here's our model for us. It's here's our business model, and here's how much we have to own of a company, and here's the and here's the way we're thinking about price. Um, and cause a lot of the times the, the conversations are about price or about deal terms and being comfortable saying, look, this is, this is our model. And here's, I've had founders come back to me and say, I, I say, sort of here's option A and option B and we're indifferent between these two. Uh, we think, we think this one makes sense uh, for you, but, but up to you. And that's, that's often a way to kind of, um, uh, communicate both indifference and willingness to walk away if it's not one of those two options. And I've had founders come back to me and say, uh, even when they even when they didn't like the the options, say you're very clear with how with how you were thinking about it, and gave me the choice to be able to kind of look at what would be what would would let me kind of if I wasn't necessarily showing you all of my cards, let me kind of privately look at my cards and say, okay, based on this, you're indifferent between these two things. Here's here's this one makes more sense than this one, but I do think that there's there's companies we're looking at now that are that are. Uh, in very strong positions with the with with people being quarantined and their user numbers are going up and they're saying look our deal is closing this week and so we can say um, this is this is and it's at this price and we say at that price it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense for us I understand why it makes sense for you and if you're gonna in our world it's like we're gonna raise a small amount at a very high valuation I think that there are uh, pros to that, but there are also cons to that as we come out of this. And will you be able to raise the next round and grow into that valuation with such a small, small amount of capital? I'm sure there's similar things in, uh, in, uh, in, in sports negotiation where you're sort of saying, okay, well, do you really want to optimize for that? And the example of, do you, is your goal actually to make all the money? Is your goal actually to, to limit your dilution in the startup world? Or is your goal to put yourself in a really strong position going forward to have the options that you actually value? One other comment I just wanted to, one other comment I wanted to make was that I thought that, uh, that I think right now in sort of coronavirus quarantine world is, is in many ways a, a great equalizer. So in, in, uh, in, if you don't have the NCAA tournament right now, you're missing a whole bunch of data. If you don't have a draft, then you're missing a whole bunch of process. Similarly in startups, normally it, it, we expect to meet with somebody in person. And there, so that gives a tremendous advantage to people who live in Silicon Valley. All of a sudden, 
a VC doesn't actually know whether they're talking to somebody in Paris or in California or New York. So in, in many ways, it's an equalizer. So there's, there's pros and cons, I think, to it. Um, and then the other thing that you guys, uh, that, yeah, I think was a common throw that everybody mentioned was uh, the value of integrity. And people think about integrity. Well, I used to growing up thinking, so this is a good thing. Inherently, it's good. But it's also actually a, a competitive advantage. It's, it's, it's mathematically makes sense to be more honest and to share more information and to listen to people because you'll get that reputation and then people will trust you. And trust has, is a currency in negotiation over long term. So in an effort to act with integrity and respect all of your times, um, I'm going to just close by asking each of you to share any advice quickly and also where people can learn more about what you're up to. I know all four of you are, are tweeters. Uh, all of you are on, on, in the Twitter, Twitter sphere, whatever it's called. Um, some of you uh, more than others, but I know all of you live there. And so let people know where they can follow you on social. And if you have any insight or advice that a nugget that you want to leave people with, and I could do this for another two hours, but that's, that's me. Um, so I just want to thank you all for your time. I know you're all very busy and have a lot going on. Some of you are in the middle of free agency right now. Um, others of you are in the middle of deals and, uh, you know, creating coursework or uh, working on a bunch of other stuff. So I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you all for your friendship. And Bob, why don't you just let people know where they can find you and any last second insight that you think people would enjoy learning? Sure. And thanks again, Brian, and everyone for doing this. Um, I've learned a lot about negotiation today, which is great. So yeah, you can find me um, at, I do tweet. Um, for a while, I was tweeting a lot of politics, but that kind of ended. Um, so you can find me at, at Bob Bordone on Twitter um, or my website, which is really easy, bobbordone.com. Um, and the thing I wanted to just share, um, a lot of this conversation has been about deal-making uh, for obvious reasons. A big part of negotiation, though, is also resolving and managing disputes and conflicts. And I think this is a moment where we see a lot of wonderful human action happening around people coming together and helping each other. I think, unfortunately, there's gonna be, um, in fact, inevitably, a stream of conflicts that are coming now and that will flow from this. And a lot of the tools and skills we're talking about around deal-making actually apply in conflict management. Um, and I think my hope is that um, I will be able to, as this moves forward, to help parties who find themselves in conflict situations, uh, needing some help either strategically thinking about it or maybe working with people on other sides of the conflict um, to really see this as an opportunity um, to actually build the bridge and be creative um, and, and not just kind of hunker down and defend. Um, and so if people are interested in that, it's a topic that's quite close to my heart. Um, and I'm trying to see this moment as an opportunity that might be really for us to remember what's most important and as this ends, um, use our considerable tools, skills and talents to resolve these differences um, that will necessarily arise from contracts broken and bad things happening to use them as a way to actually build something more generative. Awesome, thanks Bob. Blake, why don't you go next? Uh, yeah, thanks again, Brian, for putting this together. I, I learned a lot, and to each of you individually, congratulations on what you guys have built. It's uh, it's impressive, and hopefully get an opportunity to, to stay in touch. So I appreciate all you guys and Brian for putting it together. Um, 
I don't even know if I know my handles. My Twitter at, handle. at Blake Barrett's. That's his. That's his <laughs> last name. And then their website. I never know if your website is up and running or not. But your team IFA. Uh, but is your website even up? I, he's like he yeah, loves Twitter. Blake he's been on it more recently than I am. I have no idea. Check yeah. Blake and Bob both like tweeting and uh, uh, well, Bob mentioned politics. Blake doesn't hold back on his tweets either. There's not a, there's not a big filter in Blake. Sometimes <laughs> I read, sometimes I read Blake's tweets and I'm like, dude, are you, are you sure that's what you want to put out there? But Blake doesn't sugarcoat and doesn't, doesn't uh, hold back on some of his thoughts and opinions. I get like uh, interventions from my office being like, can you tone it down a little bit on Twitter? I'm like, I try, and then like after three months, I have a relapse, and I put something out there again. <laughs> Danielle, uh, go ahead, Blake. Any other thoughts? No, I, I, uh, I guess overall thoughts. Um, I think just during this crazy time, I think it's important just to help you know, small businesses, local businesses, just in general. I think that's a key driver to our economy and people keeping their jobs and. Um, and whatnot. So I think that's really important as much as humanly possible. Uh, I've certainly helped Amazon plenty, but I'm going to try to help as many local businesses as I, as I can. And, uh, you know, from a negotiation standpoint, I just think it's important to um, be tough, but fair and, and be transparent and be honest. And I can't remember if it was you, Brian, or, or Bob, but someone, you know, spoke a lot about communication. Danielle, it might've been you. Uh, communication is key. And whenever I see issues, um, 90% of the time it comes from a failure or lack of communication. Uh, communication can solve a lot of things and, uh, you can be a great football coach, but you could be a terrible communicator. You could be a great GM, but be a terrible communicator. You can be a great wide receiver, but be a terrible communicator. Uh, so all of these things, in my opinion, come down to how you communicate and to communicate with a, a wide array of people, uh, you have to be able to adapt to different personalities and that's going to ultimately lead to better results in my opinion, I'm not the expert. I wasn't fortunate enough to go to Harvard, so I'm not the expert. <laughs> well, Blake, you're not just surrounded by Harvard. I didn't mention Danielle went to Penn. Matt went to Penn too, right, Matt? Yeah, so we got yeah, Ivy Leagues yeah, around yeah. us. We, and, and Bob went to Dartmouth before. My real love is Dartmouth, Harvard. actually. Yeah, he's, he's got I, too, gonna, too many Ivy Leagues. <laughs> I'm going to be room. tweeting something to the incoming Dartmouth class of uh, 2024 uh, shortly. Awesome. awesome. And Blake's Blake's a dummy. He went to Tulane and then went to Wisconsin, right? Correct. So he's just really dumb. Yeah, just just so we're clear. Um, Danielle, why don't you go next? Uh, yeah, thanks again for doing this. I really enjoyed the conversation. Love what, what each of you are doing and actually hope we can uh, keep in touch after this because I have some follow-up questions for, for each of you, actually. Um, but I'm on Twitter, dcantor22. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm definitely reachable. I try to respond very quickly to as many people as I can. I think during this time, um, as I mentioned before, and, and Blake just touched on again, the, the importance of communication and the importance of, of staying connected with people. And it's so interesting because I always like to talk about the, the need to disconnect in order to connect to disconnect from technology and from distraction in order to be fully present and connect um, in, you know, in person with people. Um, I didn't mention earlier that I'm also a wife and a mother. Um, in, in my introduction, I kind of forgot the most important aspects of my life. I have two daughters um, and a wonderful husband. And, and obviously I have a lot of travel, uh, you know, a lot of demands in, in my career and 
when I first had kids, my daughters are now nine and seven, um, you know, it was quite an, adjust, an adjustment because I am an A++ individual, um, driven, motivated, hold myself to very high standard. And it was hard because I wanted to be the absolute best, both as a mother and in my career. And um, what I learned, what I, I was able to do, I think, to get to a better place to have that balance is when I am with my family, I am fully present and with my family. And so it's quality over quantity. It may, I may not be there all the time, but when I'm there, my clients know that they may have to wait for a minute unless it's an emergency and vice versa. Once I go and I'm on a business trip or I'm with my clients, then I'm fully present and fully there for them. And my family understands that. So I think it's so important typically to put your phone down when you're, when it's family time, um, put the phone down when you're having an important conversation with a client or with a colleague here. Now, what we're going through, ironically, we are relying so heavily on technology in order to stay connected. So I think the challenge is how we do that in a meaningful way. Um, and maintain that genuine interaction with people um, when technology is involved. And I think it's really important to stay disciplined and to stay connected with people during this time because when you're home in quarantine and you know just adjusting to this new normal, um, not, not leaving the house, not going into an office, it may become more and more difficult to stay connected and to maintain those lines of communication. And so I think we have to try even harder just to check in with people, to empathize with people, and most importantly, to find a way to add value. Whether it's you know identifying one person and finding a way to add value to that individual's life and what he or she is going through right now, or to find a way based on your skill set or on your um, position, whatever it is in life, find a way to add value based on the current situation. Um, and when you can do that, it will, I think there will be long-term dividends once we all come out of this. Um, and I think that can be applied to, to any aspect of life anyway, in terms of differentiating yourself by adding value. And adding value doesn't always mean being the first to speak up or the loudest. Oftentimes that means listening. Um, like Matt said earlier, it means being the best listener because that's what an that's the way you can add value at that particular time. So I think stay, stay disciplined, stay connected and over-communicate during this period of time. Um, as we're all navigating these these sort of unch unchartered territories. Thank you so much, Danielle. Matt, take us home. Uh, so I'm Matt Hartman on Twitter. So we're sharing our, our Twitters. Uh, you know, I'll give you, a, I'll stick to negotiations specifically. I think that negotiations is one of the few things where academia and practical life have very quick feedback loops. So you can watch an article, you can read an article about it, you could read a book about it, you can watch a quick YouTube video, and you will see opportunities to apply that immediately and practice it. And practicing actually helps. I think that's such a, a fun, exciting part of specifically about negotiations is that it's just present everywhere. Um, and uh, so uh, thank you, Brian, for, for having me on. And, and thank you uh, to everybody for educating me on how this is uh, applicable elsewhere. And uh, and I hope everybody stays healthy and safe and uh, washes their hands. I love that. I love that map around practice because a lot of people talk about preparation and I actually make a distinction between practice and preparation. I think practice is the act of actually practicing what it's like to perform. So with that in mind, when I see my three-year-old daughter tonight, I'm going to be practicing negotiation to try to get her to get, go to bed and stay in her bed, which I will be using 
everything that I've learned uh, during this conversation today. You all didn't caveat it to say if it's a, a, applicable to three-year-olds, but we'll try and I'll report back to each of you. Um, and a check is in the mail if it works uh, for each of you. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations on intentionalperformers.com. Thank you all for your time. I know you're busy. I know you got to run. Appreciate it. I love you all very much. Stay safe. I'll wash my hands. You too. See ya. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Brian.